Our passage this morning as we continue to go through the Gospel of Mark is in chapter 6, verses 6 through 13. Um, If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, But let me pray for us as we begin. Father God, we come here in need of hearing from you. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us from your word, that you have spoken in the days before through uh, the prophets, but now you have spoken with finality in Jesus. Um, And he has continued to speak to us by the spirit by which we have the word here, the very word of you um, inspired by the Holy Spirit for us. And so as we listen, Lord, give us attentiveness. Give us an eagerness to hear from you what you have to say. It's so important. It's the most important thing that we could hear. So please block out any other distractions that we might have. Take this and form us. Let us hear from you again to be reminded about who you are and about who we are. May the the hope of Jesus Christ uh, be, be evident here. Would you grow us and build us in faith? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 6, the second part of uh, verse 6, all the way to verse 13. This is God's word. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Amen. Well, from a purely uh, descriptive perspective, from a a history of religions perspective, one of the various ways, the multiple ways that various religions can be categorized are those that proselytize and those that don't. Those that actively go out and seek to make disciples, seek to make converts, and then those who remain passive in seeking converts or in making converts. And one of them assumes that if it indeed does hold truth, then that truth should go forth. In fact, it would be wrong to not send it forth. It would disrespect the notion of truth itself. It would disrespect those who, that, who would be deprived from the truth. And it would respect the deity of that religion at, co- at its core also. And then the other assumes that beliefs are individual and private. And it may rely on the notion of a journey or coming to a, some realized state of being. But are, are our beliefs truly individual and private? If you believe, if you really believe that in... in that the way you're on is a truthful way, then why would you keep that to yourself? That would be withholding from others. But there's also this. If you have the truth, but you don't share it, then how deeply held are your beliefs in that truth? 
And so here's the point. If you have a claim regarding truth, and we're talking about some important truth, truth that speaks to our fundamental purposes as human beings, truth that speaks to the transcendent, then you will give that truth out if you truly believe it. I don't, I don't like to make another dichotomy here, but here's one more that's important. You're here this morning either as a Christian, a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus Christ, or a non-Christian. Maybe you reject Jesus, maybe you are agnostic about the faith, or you have questions about who he is. But for for both Christians and for non-Christians, this is an important idea. Christians make converts. They seek to make followers, disciples, believers in Jesus, worshipers of the one true God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the reason is because we believe that this truth here of the Bible, which bears witness to him. We believe that this truth is so important, so fundamental for life, that we want to draw others into knowing not only the same claims, but also knowing God himself, God as he is revealed in the Bible. Uh, The the famous comedian Penn Jillette, who's also a well-known atheist and an outspoken skeptic, in a video that he posted about 10 years ago, tells the story of a man who gave him a Bible after one of, of their shows. And even though he's an atheist, and the man knew that he was an atheist, he still appreciated the gesture of him giving him a Bible. And he says this in there, he quote, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever and you think it wouldn't be worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists would think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not to tell them that? Again, from an atheist saying that. A man who doesn't believe in the existence of God. But Christians are also to look outwards and seek to make new disciples because Jesus tells us to do so. It's part of the privilege of being in the the Christian life, of being in Christ. He sends us out to do his work. We are given a new purpose. It's to live for something much higher than just our own desires. How gracious Jesus is to send us as his instruments to be the tools that he uses for the furthering of his kingdom and its building in this world. But here's the thing too. He uses broken tools. He takes broken tools as we are on our own and then he fixes them. He redeems them in order that he might put them to use to build an edifice that is so much more grand than we could imagine. And that's what we see in our passage this morning. He sends out the twelve his inner ring of disciples, who later in in verse 30 he'll refer to as apostles after their return. But these 12 here are the foundation for the New Testament church. And the mission that Jesus gives to them and, and sends them out with is the mission that the church continues to carry out today. The commission for the church today is reflected in Jesus's commission for the disciples. I said before that there are, I realize there are both Christians and non-Christians here this morning. 
And even though this passage is about the mission of the church as being sent out by Jesus Christ, I still want you, no matter if you're a Christian or a non-Christian, to get something from this. And so if you're a Christian, then this is for you right here. That we would recover the mission given to us, given to us being the church, and have it set before us once again to see it in a fresh new light and to understand its goodness. And if you're here this morning and not a Christian, or if you're mulling about who Jesus is, then I want you to understand why he would send his truth out in the first, or his, his church out in the first place and go spread his truth. More importantly, I want you to see this Jesus more clearly, more believably, and more compelling than you did before. And there are four questions I want to frame this notion of Jesus commissioning and sending his church around. Four questions that relate, though, to the practicality of his sending. And the first question is, why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus do this? We often just assume that he would send out his disciples. We get why after his ascension because Jesus is physically absent. But why would he do so when he was still there with his disciples? Do you think the disciples asked why? Do we ask why? But as Jesus sent the disciples out, it reveals something about him and his purposes for himself and the destiny of the world. So why would Jesus do this? Because it's urgent. Because it's urgent. That's not the only reason. It gives him joy to commission and send us out. Joy that others will know him. Joy that his kingdom people will further reflect the diversity that he intends to be in his kingdom. And it gives us joy too. It's a gift that he gives to us as he brings us out of our out of our sins and darkness, and then, and then sends us off as his messengers in his service. And those are very good reasons. But ultimately, the reason that he sent his disciples out two by two is because it is urgent. And this urgency calls for a greater efficiency in his mission. He wants his kingdom to spread more quickly. Jesus came to bring his kingdom of righteousness and of wholeness, and he is concerned with the news of this kingdom to spread more quickly than just he can do on his earthly own. So he sends out his disciples to spread the news and to display the kingdom on his behalf. And he does so because it's urgent. And it's urgent because this is good news. It's the best news. And it's what he came to do. He wants it spread everywhere. Though he's the son of God, his coming to earth was also limited, he limited himself here to one physical location. And he worked hard up to this point, right? There are times that we've read when he worked late into the night healing people, and that was after a day of teaching people, and that's not considering the travel time, and they had to walk for travel. It was exhausting for just him alone to be doing this. And he wants it to travel faster throughout the towns of Galilee and to go even further than this small forgotten corner of the Roman Empire. He wants it to go beyond the borders of Palestine and out to all the world. And he begins to accomplish that by sending his disciples out throughout the area. And he continues to do that now even as he sends the church in this intermediate time of his physical absence But not his spiritual absence, though, because he has given us his spirit. He is with us here, even though he has ascended. 
So our lives are not to be lived in privacy, but they are lived to be publicly before all. To be a believer in Jesus and a part of his church is to take up the call to live publicly. Our following doesn't just take place in the inward life, but it manifests itself externally. The change that we experience isn't only in our hearts, but it's through our public living. And our public living happens both individually, but also collectively as members of his church. And then the urgency of Jesus here is also displayed in his instructions that he gives to them, starting in verse 8. He says, don't take very much with you beyond the minimal traveling needs. Travel light in order to travel fast. Don't take a carry-on. Don't even take a backpack with you. Just, Just your pockets. Carry a walking staff. Put your shoes on and only take the clothes that you have on your back. And then travel light to travel fast and stay at the same place there as you enter a village or a town. The first place that takes you in, which would have been assumed in this culture here, a culture of hospitality, the first place that invites you in, stay there. If you get an invite to a nicer place, to better digs, don't take them up on it. You're not going on vacation. This isn't a time to be comfortable. This is strictly business. This is a business trip. And if they reject you, he says, then keep on going. Go to the next village where they might be more receptive. Again, this is urgent. He sends them out pretty bare. But one of these reasons is to avoid them getting tangled up and distracted by other affairs. Possessions often call our loyalties into question. They have a curious way of revealing what's inside our hearts and what it is that we value. In the story of the Jesus and the rich young ruler, when the rich young ruler was told by Jesus to sell all that he had and follow him, even after he says that he obeyed all the law, when he's told to sell everything and go follow him, he's disappointed because he couldn't do it. He thought he had followed the law of God to a T, but it showed there what was really in his heart. And as Jesus sends them out with next to nothing, there's an implicit question of what they value. It's one thing to follow me, but are you willing to listen and to be sent by me with just the clothes that you're wearing and a stick? He's not making any claims about possessions being wrong, but he's talking about possessiveness. When we value our earthly possessions or have our minds drawn more to them than to God or to the mission that he sent us on. And it goes beyond mere possessions. Because what does our grip on possessions reveal about our desires? Is it living a life of comfort? Of wanting to hold to status? And measure our status against others by what we have? Is it pride as we look at what our hands have worked for and then being satisfied in lesser things? But here's the thing. None of that will really satisfy us. The peace and comfort that we want to derive from them will, will ebb away. And it will never give us true peace. The status that we want that our possessions to give will never be secure as we will continually measure it against others and see it as precarious. The pride that we have then will all seem like ashes in our mouths at the end as we approach the end of our lives and ask, is this all that I've lived for? Yet there's something better for God's people. There's something far better and far more lasting than mere possessions or comfort in this life. There's the eternal inheritance of Christ himself which is in store. And the peace and the comfort of the God of all comforts 
There's the deep satisfaction with the God who created you and who gives us all the status that we could ever ask for as we are deeply loved and we are cherished by him in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, we are given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Okay, so the second question, though, how is the church to do this? How is the church to do this? Who are we to be given this important task by God? The same question could be applied to those disciples. Who were they? They were nobody. They were just some meager guys. And if they were going on their own accord, why would anyone have listened to them in the first place? They didn't have anything. There was nothing other than this call to which distinguished them, this call which distinguished them from everyone else. And looking at them from an earthly perspective, they had no more visible relevance than a traveling salesman coming to town or someone standing on a street corner holding a sign. People who we ignore all the time. But that's not how they were sent, nor how they were to go about it. So how is the church to do this? In his authority. In his authority. They didn't go on their own. They were sent And they were sent with his authority. He gave them authority, his authority over the unclean spirits. He gave them the authority to heal, the authority to speak on their behalf. All of this is done in his name and with his authority. They were extensions of Jesus in a sense. Their words and actions reflected his. The reason that they were to be listened to and be taken seriously in the first place is because they were ministering on his behalf. Now, we understand rightly, at least in theory, that the ministry of the church isn't done in our power, but it's in God's. The Spirit of Christ is alive and well within us. But it doesn't stop there. The ministry of the church isn't done on our authority. It's done with, the church, with Jesus' authority. All that the church does, its words, its deeds, its governance, is done in his name, on his behalf, with his authority. It's not our opinions. It's not our collection of good ideas. It's not from the church's traditions that are passed down. It's his. Doesn't that add to the seriousness with which we undertake ministry? And the seriousness of which we take being sent? We are acting in his name. And so what's that mean? It means that... All what the church does um, in accordance with what he tells us to, which is in the scriptures, has the backing of Jesus and is on his behalf. If you're wondering what the church is doing, though, or what the church is supposed to do, this is it. It's supposed to minister Jesus. It's supposed to give what we've been given in Jesus. We don't give our opinions It isn't our thoughts. It's not our words. We give what Jesus says. We speak what he says from his word. When we carry out his deeds of mercy, there's something distinct that sets the church apart than any other humanitarian organization or any other philanthropic service. We are acting so in Christ's name. Christian service to the world isn't the same as other service efforts because our acts are done with a different backing, with a different motive, with a being sent here with the kingdom of Christ in mind, which is something transcendent. And there are other organizations in the world that may be more efficient than the church, that may be more well-funded than the church. But only the church, though, does so in Jesus' name, and it goes with his authority and with the gospel behind its call.
And speaking and acting with the authority of Jesus isn't only weighty and transcendent. It also establishes boundaries for the church. If we are given his authority, then that means we are accountable to him. And everything that we do, everything that we say, better have the proper warrant from from what he clearly says in his words. When I was a kid, my mom used to sometimes give me a $5 bill and walk down the street a few blocks to the corner store to buy a gallon of milk and bring it back home. And I was supposed to always bring the, the change back. Now, my mom, in one sense, was sending me with her authority to go to the store and to pick up that gallon of milk. I was acting on her behalf. I was given her instructions. But if I were to go and to have only bought half a gallon of milk with that $5 bill and then use the difference to get something else for myself, maybe to grab a couple candy bars or a a hot dog from that roller grill, then I would have been held accountable. I would have not been acting according to my mother's authority. And I would have been accountable to her if I would have only come back with a half-eaten hot dog and a half a gallon of milk. Everything that we do and say as a church, it would better have the proper warrant from what God says clearly in his word. The exercise of his authority better be done with the proper righteousness and truthfulness of Jesus and according to his character. And if we err in what we do, or if we just flat out act contrary to his word, his person, and his character, then he will hold us accountable. See, acting in his name doesn't give us license. And it also establishes boundaries for us. Acting in his authority means that we act according to his word and we don't go any further from that. Now again, if I had gone down to the corner store with that $5, I'm supposed to bring the change back, get a gallon of milk and bring the change back. And I had bought the gallon of milk but also used the change to buy myself a candy bar and came back with both there, I still would have been crossing the bounds, the boundaries of the authority which my mother gave me was to go and just buy a gallon of milk and bring that change back. It doesn't matter that I bought the gallon of milk, I was still acting outside of the bounds. Acting in God's authority, in Jesus' authority, means that we act according to his word and we don't go any further than that. After all, there are some things that Jesus didn't come to do, right? The church acting on his authority from his word isn't given the authority to tell people who to vote for or for what political party to adhere to. It doesn't have the authority to tell people to what educational philosophy to implement or an economic vision to adhere to. Jesus himself never did any of that. And that's not to say that his word doesn't help individuals from forming opinions on those matters. But the church acting in his authority is crossing the boundaries of his word by holding up one particular view from those ideas and saying, thus says the Lord. And acting on behalf also means acting with his character. Ministering in Jesus' name means means being sent as an extension of him. And that includes his character. As we serve and minister, our reflection is to minister or is, is to mirror him. The world ought to see an image of Jesus as we speak and as we serve. It ought to be done with his love and mercy 
The love and mercy that he embodied by dying for sinners upon the cross to reconcile us to God. The love and mercy that he continues to demonstrate to us by his care for us even still today. It ought to be done with his justice and truth. The justice of the righteous Jesus who cares for the poor and the weak and the needy. Who spoke truth and continues to speak truth. It ought to be done reflecting his incarnation with the humility of the Son of God who took on humanity and who came near to us, who is willing to enter into our spaces and get down into the muck and the dirt of real life. And praise Jesus for not leaving us alone in doing that, but by giving his Spirit to change us to be more like him, to reflect Jesus better as the Spirit slowly works on us from the inside out. And that's not something that we can do on our own We can't remake ourselves. But Jesus, though, wants us to cast an accurate image of who he is. And so he works in us. He gives us the spirit to work on us. And so that the world would see him more clearly as it sees us. I mean, imagine what we would look like without the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't reflect Jesus very well at all. And even though we are imperfect at doing so, and there are plenty of times we can look throughout history and point with shame at our shortcomings there of how we failed to, to look like Jesus. Praise God, praise Jesus, that he has still given us his spirit to continue then to form us into looking a little bit more like him. And so the third question, though, what is the church to say and do? What's the church to say and do? Acting with someone's authority means you better get it right. Because if not, you misrepresent the authoritative one. So what do we say? What do we do? We bring his message. We bring his message. Jesus gave his disciples a message to take with them. In verse 12, it says that people should repent. And this is the same message that Jesus himself spoke. Back at the beginning of Mark, one of those first sermons in chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus goes and he says, and he's preaching, repent and believe in the gospel. It wasn't anything new. It's what Jesus had been proclaiming the whole time. The message that his disciples themselves would have heard over and over countless times and that they would have had to consider over and over again. Repent and believe. There's forgiveness of sins in Jesus. And Jesus didn't just give this message to his disciples. He gave it to us, the church. The same message. The proclamation of repentance and faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and entrance into new life. Friends, that forms the basis for our community. That's nothing different than what we have been given or what we've received or what we've believed in ourselves. When we are speaking in Jesus' authority and with his message, we get past our own inevitable shortcomings. Somewhere along the way, we've tended to think that the message and its truthfulness relies upon ourselves. And then we shrink back in fear because we know how inadequate and weak we are. And it's true. You're not perfect. The church isn't perfect. No one who brings the gospel is perfect. The people who brought you the gospel as you first believed weren't perfect. The man standing right here isn't perfect. And no one who acts according to Jesus' power will always do it right. But that's not the point. 
The veracity of the message doesn't depend upon you or any other human element. And the truth and goodness of Jesus doesn't depend upon the goodness of his broken servants who are in the process of being mended. And that's really helpful because what we bring isn't our words, it's his word. There are countless situations and experiences that others go through which are unlike ours. And we tend to think that we need to have a similar experience in order to speak truth to them. But they don't need you. They need Jesus. You can't help them. You are not the Christ. They need Jesus who comforts. Jesus who heals. Jesus who puts us back together. And you have Jesus in his, in his word. They don't need to hear you. And you don't need to speak from your experience. But you can speak Christ from the word of Christ to them. That's what you give them. You give them Christ, not yourself. And then the fourth question. What if they don't listen? What if they don't listen? That's a real possibility. We've seen all sorts of unbelievers in Mark. Even just the passage that we looked at last week, going back to his hometown where all of his old friends and relatives were there. And the expectation is that if anyone's going to believe, it's going to be these people. But yet what happens? They didn't believe. So do we give up? Do we get angry? What if they don't listen? What if they don't listen? Remember that you are acting in his name. Remember, you're acting in his name. It's his mission which he sends the church on. And it's his message which he sends the church with. And there will undoubtedly then be similarities between his ministry and ours. Especially if we are considering ours as an extension of his ministry and we are serving in his name. And that includes rejection. People are still the same. But ministry done in his name, bearing witness to Jesus from his word, isn't a rejection of the church. It's not a rejection of you. It's a rejection of Jesus. And that brings a seriousness which is conveyed in, in Jesus' words here, in his instructions in verse 11. It says, if you encounter a place that doesn't receive you, or in other words, that rejects you, then leave and shake the dust off of your feet. What is that? It's an act of disassociation. It says, I'm not going to remain here any longer, and I'm going to leave even the dust from the soles of my sandals that I picked up here. Because if you not receive the message of life in Jesus, then it's saying that you're liable to condemnation, and I don't want anything to do with that. It was a prosecuting witness for unbelief. The failure to receive the kingdom and now have judgment hanging over them for disbelieving the clear witness of Christ. Now, not a final condemnation there, but if you are persisting in that unbelief there, if you are remaining in your current state. And the response to the disciples would be a response to Jesus, precisely because they didn't come on their own accord, but they came as Jesus' emissaries. Not believing the word of God is not believing God himself. And that's not a consideration just for those who don't believe. It's also a consideration for those who do believe and are sent. Because we better make sure that we have his word correct then. And with this here, there's a seriousness in all of this. Because this is what Jesus says here about eternal judgment. And we don't like to talk about eternal judgment. It's something that we shy from. It's something that sometimes we're embarrassed about. Because it seems that it might be antithetical to a loving God. 
And some people are offended by it. And that's for both professing and non-professing people. It's something not pleasant to think about. None of us can really fathom what eternal condemnation from the holy God looks like. All we know is the metaphors that Jesus uses to describe it. And that they're awful. Darkness. Weeping. The gnashing of teeth. But Jesus talked about it. And he sends us in his name. And so we need to talk about it also. And admittedly, there are other angles for the gospel message that we, and myself included here, like to take. Like the joy of eternal life and satisfaction. That there's new life in the spirit, new resurrection life to come. Glory and majesty. Human flourishing at its best. And those are all good, and we need to speak those, but not also at the expense of this one that we need to remember. The judgment of the holy God for sinners who have offended and rejected him and are deserving of his wrath. And there are moments when we are required to press warnings upon people. But not out of judgment, out of concern. Because warnings can get us to think twice, can't they? That's part of shaking the dust off. It it was to get the people to think again about everything that they had heard. And it's the same today here. Don't omit Jesus' words of judgment because hearing those may get people to think again about what's in store if they remain in their state of unbelief. But those judgments can't be given, though, in a judgmental spirit. That's not the same thing. Preaching judgment isn't the same as judging others. Jesus preached judgment, but he did so as the most loving and caring person that the world had ever seen. So that they would hear their condition and to be brought from it and into belief. Judgment is part of what brought him to redeem us in the first place. Because all humanity lay under the judgment of our sins. He stepped forward in our place. He bore the full wrath and condemnation that the sins of his people deserved. And he became sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God. And that's not merely a message of judgment. That's a message of infinite love. The church is a sent people. The church is commissioned by Christ. It is sent on an urgent task. It's sent in his authority and with his message as we act in his name and ministering the Jesus who we first received and first have hoped in. The Jesus who was crucified, the Jesus who was raised, and the Jesus who is Lord over his kingdom of wholeness and righteousness. And the church ministers Jesus not only through the word that is spoken and heard, but also the word as it's seen. Sacrament. Where the crucified and risen Jesus is given to us Again, given to us with all of his promises, though here in bread and wine. And so let's pray as we respond to hearing and we prepare for eating. Let's pray. Lord God, this is an incredible, amazing calling that Jesus has put upon us. And who are we to, in ourselves to be given this? We're no one. And we have no strength in ourselves to do this either. But thank you. Praise Jesus. Praise the Spirit that we are not alone, Father. 
That Jesus has not only commissioned us, but that he has also sent us with the power of the Spirit, sent us in his authority to go and to be witnesses, to go into the world, to, to go forth in our neighborhoods, in our community, to our neighbors, to go not in our own power, not on our own authority, not with our own words, but all of that which is from Jesus. And so make us a people who reflect him more, a people who speak, a people who serve. Make the church beautiful as the the gospel uh, shoes of preparation are given to us. As we come now to the table, let's remember the, the sufficiency and adequacy of Jesus Christ who is given to us. In his name and for his sake, amen.